Well, welcome to today's episode. This week we have Tyler Chesser. Tyler, welcome to the show. I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Anthony. It's great to be here. No problem. I met Tyler at Todd Dexheimer's uh, North Star Conference a couple weeks ago, actually months ago now, actually, when time flies. But Tyler is a founder and president of the Chester Companies. He's a CRE broker, commercial real estate broker, multifamily investor, peak performance coach for multifamily investors. And prior to investing in real estate, he was an international marketing, market research, direct sales with global Fortune 500 companies. Recently recognized as a rising star, 30 and under internationally and in commercial real estate by CCIM, Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine. Man, how are you accomplishing so much at such a young age so quickly as well? I don't know, man. Um, you know, it's always it's always interesting to listen to the bio and and uh, just talk about that. And I don't know, man. I'm just passionate about what I do. Um, it's funny because I'm a I'm a big reader, and I was reading a book this morning actually by Dean Graziosi, and it's called The Millionaire Success Habits. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me, it actually. Some of the stuff that he talks about early in the book is really basic, but it reminds you, you need these course corrections sometimes. And what the exercise he went through is like the why. It's like going seven steps deep and trying to figure out why. And I did that early on in my career. And I started to learn like, why did I want to be, you know, something greater than ordinary, something more than just the average. And so, you know, that kind of stuff just pushes me and, and I'm always just trying to get after it and just become something more every single day. So I don't know. I, don't, I definitely don't think that I've scratched the surface on who I can potentially become uh, one day, but um, I don't know. I guess that kind of gives you a little bit of a look into why, uh, why I'm so driven to, to do big things. Awesome. Everybody has their own wife. For me, is my four-year-old daughter. That's why I got into real estate. Is I want to provide something for her that she could look up to and be able to see what she could accomplish if she decides to go that route. So, 100%. how did you get into real estate? You mentioned a little bit about your wife, but how did you transition into real estate? <clears throat> yeah. So I was in the corporate world before, and I was, you know, I was I was climbing that ladder, and I was learning a lot, and it was a, you know, it was a really good you know, experience for me to be able to kind of get my professional feet wet, so to speak. But then I, I it's funny because I had like sort of, you know, grown to a point where I I bought a house myself and I didn't buy it as an investor or anything like that. I bought it as a, as someone who was going to live in the home and it was my first home and I was proud of that. However, it was interesting because it kind of pushed me in this direction because I started to have some maintenance issues with the house. It's funny because life happens for you, not to you, as Tony Robbins says, and at that time, it didn't feel like it was for me. You know, it definitely felt like it was to me. And I was having a lot of money issues, to be honest with you. I was like, the house is breaking down. And, you know, it was still early in my career. So I hadn't, you know, yet received my financial footing, so to speak. And, um, you know, I really needed to figure out how I was going to pay for a lot of these things. You know, it's funny because I look back and I'm like, man, you know, I, I didn't account for maintenance issues, which we all know, you know, now if you own real estate, you got repairs and maintenance, it's definitely going to be something to expect. Um, but looking back, I was super ignorant on these things. And I did have a very unlucky spell where I had like pipes breaking under the garage and in the front yard. And, um, you know, I had like a, a hot leg wire that actually snapped because one of the roots grew into it. I had a bee colony built in the ceiling of the side of the house. It was about 30,000 bees. So to get it cut out, 
like all these things were happening. It was crazy because I was like, oh my gosh, I was overwhelmed. But as I kind of got through this, as I sort of became more resourceful, I said, how else can I make more money? I can go and ask for a raise and I can do these things and I would get these raises, but it wouldn't be substantial enough to take care of these issues. So I was like, well, you know what? I, I think I could be a good salesman. So maybe I can go get my real estate license and make some extra money. And at that time, I didn't know anything about real estate other than selling houses. And so I went and got my license and started selling houses on the side. And not only was I able to take care of my bills and those kind of things and my maintenance issues, but I was able to really kind of raise my income, you know, quite significantly for the, for the time. And, and I got really interested in real estate. And so long story short, at that point, I said, you know what, there's something here, but it's maybe it's not residential. Maybe it's not houses just because it was very emotional and I couldn't quite grasp the emotions of it. And uh, so then I learned about commercial real estate. I learned about income producing assets, whether it was, you know, multifamily, retail office, you name it. And I started to learn about that and I started to just dive into it. And so that's when I decided that that was the avenue that was going to be more beneficial for me. And so that's kind of how I got into it. I mean, that's a 30,000 foot view. Awesome. I love how you took that problem or situation. You were like, hey, let me learn from it and go this direction. Like you said, life happens for you, not to, because we all had issues where why me, those why me yeah. moments, then you get through it and it's like, now I understand why. So can you explain to me or us a little bit about your first commercial real estate deal? How did you find a deal the process about stuff like that? Yeah. So um, when I got started in the business, I was lucky enough to get referred to a group who owned a portfolio of commercial real estate. And they owned, you know, a, quite a significant portfolio, but it was kind of a scattered portfolio and it was tough. I mean, there were some challenges with it. You know, it was in tough, some, some of it was in tougher parts of town. Some of it was, you know, had a lot of deferred maintenance. And so they had multifamily, they had office and they had retail. And I was lucky enough and, and I was so like, you know, green at the time that I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. And I'm glad that I didn't because I jumped into the deep end and learned everything there was to know about it uh, in terms of selling these properties. Um, so it was about a $30 million portfolio and they were looking to sell all of these, you know, these properties and exchange into larger assets because it just had become such a challenge for them to manage and they needed somebody to hustle. And I was that guy, I was the guy, the hustle. And so the first, I would say the first deal I did from that, you know, was probably a sixplex, something like that. So, you know, you may consider that commercial, obviously, technically anything five and above is going to be considered commercial, but that's how I sort of started to see like, wow, this is going to be valued based on the income that it produces, the, the risk that it's associated with the upside and all these different things. And, you know, along that process, you know, we obviously sold mixed use properties, uh, retail properties, office buildings, that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I learned the different nuances of the different property types. But um, yeah, I mean, the first one was like, you know, I just kind of bumped my head and stubbed my toe on the way to the finish line and learned a lot and, and decided that, wow, the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't know and the more I needed to, to learn. And so, you know, at that point, I hired a coach. I tried to buy every single book that I could to, to learn about it. I started investing in CCIM because I was like, man, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be the best at it. You know, I'm not just going to dabble. And, and um, you know, so it was interesting. I mean, I, I definitely look back and it's like, wow, I didn't know anything. But, you know, you got to start somewhere, right? Exactly. That is true. Everybody has their beginning start, starting line. So for investors, everybody that I've talked to, 
kind of in the same realm, but very few people have the CCIM designation. Why did you decide to go after that? You said you want to be different, but what was in your mind? Okay, I want to do like this. Well, when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I mean, it made perfect sense to me that, you know, you want to invest your resources to gain more resources and, you know, to gain yourself more time, to gain yourself more streams of revenue. And I said, okay, well, that makes perfect sense. Now, how do I become great at that? And how do I do this in the right way? And how do I not make mistakes? And how do I capture great opportunities? You know, because I looked at it and I said, you know what? It makes sense from a very basic perspective, but not every deal is basic. I need to know how to be an expert and to look at a deal and say, this is going to make sense and this is how we're going to make sense of it. And so I started doing some research and saying, well, how can I become an expert in this business? Because I didn't have family in the business. I didn't really have any mentors. You know, I didn't have anybody that could kind of show me the ropes. And so as I did more research, I learned that CCIM designation is really kind of the PhD of commercial real estate. And I said, you know what, this may allow me to become an expert. This is a way that I can, you know, if I can work hard and I can cover my bills, I can use the excess capital that I have to invest in myself. And I knew, I just think I inherently knew early in my career that the best use of my capital as an investment was going to be to invest back into myself. And so CCIM seemed like the perfect place to do that. And it was, I mean, I learned about financial analysis, market analysis, user decision analysis, because at the end of the day, every single you know piece of uh, property is really determined based on the user and their decisions that they've decided to occupy that property. So that as well as obviously, you know, investment analysis, which at the end of the day, you know, any sort of development, any sort of property around the world is all because of an investment, right? And so once I started to shift my mindset and started to learn all the nuances behind commercial real estate through the CCIM process, it really shifted me. And it, and it also allowed me as somebody who was young, I mean, in my mid 20s at the time, you know, coming up in the business that you know, somebody's like, wow, you know, most of these people who are doing big deals in the business have been around for 30 plus years. And you're like this young whippersnapper coming up. And I needed to show people that I was serious, I was going to stick around. And so it, it did have a lot to do with the credibility. But I was just intrigued with the fact of, you know what, I just don't want to be that guy who just dabbles and sticks around for a couple of years and then gets knocked out. And I felt like I just inherently felt like that was the direction that I needed to go to give myself some stability and marketability going forward. Understandable. I completely agree. Like, and especially in this field where it's so um, crowded, you got to somehow find your way to stand out. And the CCIM is one of the best ways to do it. Do you recommend, from your point of view, for everybody to do it? Or is it only for brokers or somebody like that that's interested in selling should go after that? Um, not necessarily. Um, like a friend of mine, actually, uh, his name is Dylan Marma. He's with uh, the Jake and Gino guys, Rand Partners. He actually, I believe he recently completed his CCIM and he's, you know, he's an investor. I mean, that's all he does. He's an investor. Honestly, so I'm, I'm an investor as well as a broker. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that I think I'm a more effective investor because of the background through CCIM. Um, you know, now, a lot of people will say, hey, you know, book smarts isn't always, you know, what we want in terms of real estate, we want some experience. I think if you can mix that type of learning with action and with, you know, learning sometimes the hard way, I mean, you're going to still make tons of mistakes, even if you're a CCIM, but I would recommend it. I mean, if you're somebody who's interested in really understanding your investment and really delivering on a business plan, I think it would be highly recommended because I mean, it's 
a complicated business. I mean, it can be extremely complicated. I mean, we can definitely dumb it down and get very specific on, you know what, it, it, it don't, let's not overcomplicate it. But at the same time, if you want to be, you know, effective at due diligence, you want, you want to be effective negotiator, whether you're an investor or a broker or any other, you know, many other service providers in the business, um, I think it pays very well to have that background because it gives you such a wide vernacular. You know, I can go into a negotiation and really parse out a lot of details that I probably wouldn't have otherwise in terms of, you know what, we've been able to determine the market here and, you know, we just see these different factors as being a challenge for us. And here's why our negotiation is in the, and I know I'm talking in, 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 in vague terms here, but just to give you sort of a look in, I mean, and then also like, I mean, if you can really dig in and specifically underwrite a deal, and of course, you will get to a point where you need to outsource some of your analyst work and those kind of things as an investor. But, you know, as an asset manager, you know, you still need to be managing your, your analysts. You need to know what they're actually uh, underwriting on this particular opportunity. You need to be able to identify where are they making mistakes. And same thing as it goes to operating the asset. I mean, you need to know what's happening in the marketplace so you can make decisions on disposition or, you know, growing your portfolio or whatever it may be. So, I recommend it for sure. Exactly. I agree. I don't have it yet, but it's definitely in my to-do list. It's, to me, it seems like uh, having an ex another tool in your tool belt. That's another way for you to stand out, especially when talking with the brokers and stuff like that. Well, and I'll just say one more thing on it. I mean, as a, you know, I, as a younger person, I mean, I'm 30 years old um, and many other people who may be, even if you're like, up to 40, you know, 50, you're still young in this business. I mean, the average age of this business is almost 60 years old. So credibility is important, you know, and, and it's true credibility. When you're having a discussion with someone and you want to do a deal with them, they're trying to feel, all right, can this person actually make it happen? And, you know, that's just another tool in your tool belt to kind of show that you can make it happen. So I, I, I recommend it for sure. Oh yeah. So when you mentioned, can this person make it happen? You're speaking from a broker's point of view, correct? From a broker or a seller's point of view. Okay. You know, I look as a seller, I would say, hey, you know, what's your likelihood of closing? You know, yeah. or, and of course the broker's gonna say the same thing too, but at the end of the day, the seller only captures their equity when it closes or when it, you know, of course, unless they're refinancing and they'd like to see a CCIM on the other side there too. But um, yeah, that's what, that's how I see it. Okay. Let's go from a broker's point of view. What do you look for when you're talking to a buyer? Like, what do you expect from them? Or what do you know? How do you feel or you know when, okay, this guy could close. I can feel this guy knows what he's doing. He's good close. I mean, showing a track record is certainly uh, important. You know, answering questions before I ask them is always important as well. It's like, hey, here's our equity stack. You know, here's our capital stack. You know, from here's the different sources of equity that we're going to be tapping um, here's who we've worked with in terms of our debt. Um, here's the particular criteria that we're looking for. And not to get too far in the weeds, but just to show, hey, look, we're not still chasing our tails, trying to figure out, you know, what our direction, what our outcome is. We know what we're looking for. And also we're realistic and we know what's going on in the market. We're not going to waste your time. So, um, you know, I think just kind of showing that you are somebody that's going to be easy to work with is always important. Somebody that's not going to really kind of, you know, because a lot of times I, I know, especially like in my world and many other brokers who are doing, you know, business, um, you know, their, their time can be limited. So they want to spend time with folks who are going to take action and close the deal. So I think just any way you can show that you're going to 
take action, close the deal and add value to their business is always important. Exactly. Especially in this field, you got to add value. Don't kick beat around the bus, go straight to the point, give details, provide details, provide, like you said, answers to the questions before they even ask of what you're looking for. So you said be realistic. In this market, what do you mean by be realistic? Well, I mean, I, I've said this a lot of times, and I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, though. It's like, you know, I, I probably would think that it's unrealistic if somebody called me and said, hey, I'm looking in secondary markets in the southeast United States, and I'm looking for, you know, B-class deals in a, you know, or, or, or I, I hear this all the time, the C-class deals in the B location. You know, and we're looking for, you know, an eight and a half cap and we want to see, you know, a 20% IRR and, you know, 20% cash on cash. And, you know, can you find that? I mean, perhaps, perhaps. Um, I mean, you you would definitely dig very far and it would absolutely be a home run. Um, I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't discourage anyone for looking for that type of opportunity. Um, you know, but I, I do think it's a little bit unrealistic to say, Hey, here's our criteria. Now go find this for us. And then you continue to follow up on a continual basis because it's probably unlikely. I mean, at this point, it's still a very aggressive market. I mean, interest rates are super low, which is, you know, further compressed, you know, the opportunities. So I think just paying attention to what is actually happening in the marketplace is somebody who's realistic. I mean, you know, and granted, I, what I said there is a very blanket statement as well for a particular region of the United States. But what I meant to illustrate by that is, there's a lot of people looking in that region and there's a lot of people looking for that product. Therefore you've got to realize it's going to be compressed. Can it be better than average? Of course, but just that's what I talk about in terms of being realistic, realistic. Understandable. It goes back to being educated on your criteria. You got to know the market that you're going to be investing. Even if it's Midwest or Southeast, you got to know the market it goes back to the education, which is key. Absolutely. So, you're a multifamily investor as yourself as well, right? Correct. Why multifamily? Why not go just office or single family homes? Why multifamily? Well, I really like multifamily um, for many of the reasons that I'm sure you do as well as many of your listeners do. But, you know, if I look at like the trends of occupancy, like we talked earlier about user decision analysis, right? Like I think of office, I think of retail and, uh, you know, single family homes, we'll, we'll put that there too, so we can kind of discuss all of them. But if I look at multifamily, you know, from a macro level, you know, it seems to be an area that I'd like to be over the next 10, 20 years, just in terms of trends. I mean, if you look at home buying trends versus renting trends, it's tremendously shifted over the past 10 years. Now, granted, could that shift back? Of course. But I think, you know, the way that we see pricing in America, you know, it's certainly rising to a point where, you know, home ownership is is slightly in a different category than it than it was before. I mean, that used to be the American dream, whereas a lot of times people are saying, you know what, that's maybe not the American dream for me, you know, whether that's by choice or by, you know, by necessity. Um, so you're starting to see more and more renters. And, and it also like the other thing, too, is like people remember what happened 10 years ago and they're like they still have this bad taste in their mouth about values of home so they're like you know what i don't have to rent but i'm choosing to do that because i just don't want that type of risk in my life and so it makes a lot of sense as an owner to capture on those trends so i believe in that 100 percent. and then if i look at it in comparison to single family homes i mean i can definitely see from an occupancy standpoint single family homes having similar qualities of you know what 
um, you know, all the, all the trends that I just talked about, you know, people still want to live in that home. They still want to have some space. They still want to have a yard and, and those kind of things and live in the suburban type of a location that certainly is still happening. The only challenge that I see from that as an investor is scaling that. Um, it's going to be very challenging. And, you know, I think that there are companies doing it. Uh, you know, I think it's challenging to do it on a, on a larger scale. And, and I believe the name of the game is scale, especially in, in residential real estate, you know, uh, residential occupancy. Um, so I just feel like you're going to get such a better, you know, uh, spread on your dollar if you are able to scale that. And, and I just don't see how you can do it in, in single family. I haven't seen it yet. Perhaps I'll be proven wrong here in the next couple of years. Technology takes over and different things sort of add value in that space. And then maybe we have a different discussion. When we talk about retail and office, um, you know, I definitely look at that space um, as certainly being, you know, everything's hyper-local and everything's a deal by deal basis. So forgive me if I'm talking in generalities at all, but I look at retail as somewhat challenging in terms of what's happening with technology and e-commerce and, you know, omnipresence is still a thing where you've got a retail location as well as their online store and you've got different qualities where folks like to shop in store. But I think from a high level, you know, the percentage of of occupancy is sort of is lowering. And so it's, it's a higher risk type of an asset to own because at the end of the day, it's all about your occupancy. It's all about how much vacancy do you have, how much risk, you know, you got to still cash flow the deal. And same thing goes with office. I mean, you know, folks can work wherever they want to. I'm actually in my office right now, but I acquire or I, I occupy a very small office space because I don't need a huge office space. You know, it's a, it's home base for me and my team but we can still go out and really do business from anywhere we are. So if for some reason the landlord said, Hey, we need to raise the rent like crazy here. I would probably say, well, we don't really need that space. We can probably still do what we do in a different way. And so people are saying, you know, businesses are saying that on a large scale. So as an owner, potentially of an office space, that's something I have to consider. Now, when I look at like industrial as an example that, you know, I'm not an expert in industrial real estate, but it makes a lot of sense in terms of logistics and e-commerce and manufacturing and those kind of uh, industries. Obviously, it, it makes a lot of sense to be there in terms of the trends. And obviously, you see that in terms of the cap rates as well. Um, but, you know, other asset classes such as like mobile home parks and self-storage, there's a lot of, uh, you know, interesting trends there. I'm just an expert in multifamily real estate. And so, you know, one of the things that Warren Buffett says is like, you know, and I might I may butcher this is, you know, if you want to have risk, then do something that you don't know anything about. And, and granted, he said it much more eloquently than that. And so <laughs> that's one of the decisions for me is like, I see the trends, I see the occupancy, I see it not only on reports, but in real life, you know, I, so my friends are in this boat, or family members. And it's like, you know what, this makes a ton of sense. So let's be there. And uh, that's, that's my decision, at least. I completely agree. With me being a millennial, I guess you would call it we like the freedom, the choice to be able not to be tied down to one location for 30 plus years. And like you said before, it's like the people still have that bitter taste of that market crashing. They don't want to go through that experience again. It's just that fear base that they've been through don't want to experience again. So I yep. completely agree. So as a broker, how does someone like an investor find a top broker in the market? Because you probably heard of the 80-20 where there's only very few in each market. How do you know you're dealing with the top brokers in that market? You know, I do think it does. It's still a very relationship driven business. And, you know, we can do so much through technology to leverage that. 
Um, but I do still think it is about having those conversations. It's making those calls. It's, you know, talking to the active management companies in that market and asking them for references in terms of brokers, because, you know, a lot of times they're collaborating with the brokers and they're seeing what deals are being transacted and who's actually doing those deals. So I think that's one, one way that I would highly recommend, but it is about sort of figuring out who are the players in the market, not just on the broker's perspective, because I, I, I agree the 80-20 rule is at play 100%. And so you'll start to see these names that reoccur. It's like, oh, okay, so he did that deal or she did that deal. And then you hear that again. And so you sort of make mental notes of that and you definitely want to reach out to these people. Um, beyond that, you know, certainly, I mean, again, we talked about CCIM. I think it's good to, you know, look in the CCIM network because these are folks who are not only you know, trained, but they've also demonstrated the experience because with CCIM, you have to submit a portfolio of qualifying experience that's pretty significant. It shows that you've closed a certain level of transactions. Um, so you at least have that validation there. So, you know, you also want to just talk to somebody who you're, you're comfortable with, who's somebody who is somebody you can tell as a go-getter, as a hustler, and they're making things happen. So I think you'll be able to tell that through your conversations, but it is, it's not like you click a few buttons and you're gonna find it. I mean, you could certainly get started there, um, but it's all about having those conversations and really getting to know the market. As you get to know the market, you get to know the players. That is true. Is like you say, it's a relationship business. Like when I first looked into it, I'm like, it's all about the properties. And the more I dive into it and got more educated, like it's reverse. The people, yeah operates the business so you got to deal with the people understand the people because they like i say operate the business as relationship business then the rest follows well and even like even for like doing deals i mean just to your point it's a people business so you need to know like what's going on with that seller you know if you're trying to acquire a deal it is certainly about the property you need to know about the property you need to know about your business plan and implement that and how you're going to make all these different factors work but perhaps a priority over top of that is how are we going to make this deal work for the seller and how are we going to help them get to their outcome? Cause a lot of times we just think, you know what, they just want the highest price and that's it, but it's not always the case. You know, everybody's got different circumstances. And one of the things that I talk to my clients from the coaching side is, you know, cause a lot of people say, man, there's no deals out there. There's no deals to be had. And we talk about this a lot, but it's like, you know what? Circumstances are changing daily for every seller, every owner, every investor, you know, all over the place. You know, somebody may have an unfortunate circumstance where they may be going through a divorce. You know, they may have a health issue going on and they weren't aware of that last week, but now this week it is. And so you always have to stay on top of it. But I think just being cognizant of the fact that it is a people business, it's about outcomes. You know, real estate's a vehicle towards an outcome in your life. It's a good perspective to just continually remind yourself of. So true. That is so true. Like you said, the conditions change. That is so true. Because you never know what's going to happen from week to week, from day to day. You never know. So like you said, the, the key word I heard is the follow up. Mm -hmm. Consistency and following up with the people is how you will get the deals, especially in this type of market. Yep. So speaking about the market, where do you see the market is going from a broker's point of view and as an investor? You know, it's, it's a, it's a tough question. I'll, I'll definitely take a stab at it. Um, I think if you asked, you know, 10 economists, you know, you might get 10 different answers or you might get 10 of the same cookie cutter answers, you know, stress test your deals and these kind of things. Um, but I, I would say that overall, I mean, you would have to think that we've, we've got, you know, at least some sort of a correction coming at some point. 
um, which it's the nature of economics. I mean, what goes up comes down. I mean, there's a cycle for everything, right? And we're in a mature stage of that cycle. I mean, it's continued to, and really, I mean, it's grown, but um, you know, I think one thing that's happened over the past 12 months that I've seen is that, you know, a year ago or a little over a year ago, you know, interest rates were rising. And so the market started to kind of tighten up a little bit and people, you know, people started to get a little bit nervous and then all of a sudden it turned on a dime 100, 180 degrees and started plummeting in the other direction. Then people started getting loose again and, and deals continued to happen and cap rates compressed from there. So, um, you know, it was kind of interesting how that, that all happened. So, uh, you know, with that, I think it gave us some extra innings. Um, but at the same time, when you look at occupancy trends, when you look at the things that we talked about in terms of multifamily and where the tenants are going and where the people who used to be buying homes are now renting and those trends continue, you would think that multifamily still has some strength in that ongoing market. I do think that values will perhaps uh, level off. Um, but it's a very unique environment that we find ourselves in because, you know, the Fed continues to pump more liquidity into the environment every single day. So it's unique. I mean, you've never seen this happen ever before. So cash is abound. Deals are very limited. So, you know, it's supply and demand one-on-one. When there's more supply and less demand, you know, the price goes up. And so will that continue? I don't know. I mean, I read a book uh, earlier this year called uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari. And um, he's a great author. He's a great uh, writer. He actually wrote Sapiens and another book called Homo Deus, uh, which I highly recommend all of his books. But, you know, my big takeaway from this book is the environment that we're in today in the 21st century is so complex. Not even the United States government or, you know, whoever really knows what's going on or knows really the full picture. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, there's conspiracy theories and there's this one world government and all these things. And I just, I think that that's, it's a little bit ignorant because there's so many different factors at play here. You know, there's geopolitical things going on. There's trade wars. There's, you know, the Fed pumping in all this cash. There's all these trends happening. So it's very difficult to say. What I would say is control the controllables, you know, do what you can. And, um, you know, learn and, and just be aware, be ready to pivot at any moment, um, but also be willing to stick through the hard times. If there are hard times, at the end of the day, the only people that get hit or really hurt in a correction, and again, this may be me speaking from some ignorance because I wasn't in the business in 2009. So I want to definitely give that disclaimer, but I feel like the, the, the best way really to stick around is to hold on to your properties. If you don't have to sell, then it's not going to hurt you. I mean, sure, the value is not going to feel great at that point. You know, you may you may be underwater, so to speak. But if you can continue to make your payments, you can still to continue to operate your property. You know, you don't necessarily have to capitalize on that loss. You stick through it. It's an up and down thing. You know, consistently, it's always going to go up. So that's my long-winded answer to your to your question there. I love it. It's a great answer because, like you said, if you stick to it, it goes back to the fundamentals. If you do your yep. stress testing. And you can make your payments. When the market corrects itself, you will be okay. You might, like you said, it might go under a little bit, but you will be okay. And eventually, the market will start to go back in your favor and start going back up. And then you'll be glad you didn't sell. Yeah. That's all I and see. I mean, one of the things, like the the thing that I love to do as an investor is just develop my mindset because when the correction happens it's not if but when whenever it happens that's why I like a lot of it make, it's funny because these people i guarantee there will be a correction well okay i mean you look back it's always going to happen at some point 
and who knows it could just be a slight dip it could just be like a flat line it could not be the end of end of the world um, but if you can develop your mindset to a point where it's like you know but my emotions are telling me that a lion is seeing me and that i need to survive here and i've got to do everything i can to seize up and just you know be worried you know that's going to be a challenge for you but if you can say okay how do i interact with this environment as an investor who is mindful of my emotions and realizing that I'm not actually getting chased by a lion, you know, we're just dealing in a complex economic environment. Now I can capture more opportunities. I can go find more deals and, you know, I might be able to find more attractive deals than I can in a market that continues to go up. So um, I think you have to look at it as an opportunity always. Exactly. Is glass half full or glass half empty? Depends on your perspective. hundred percent. So, you talked about earlier how you was a peak performance coach. What got you into coaching other investors in that aspect? Yeah. So, um, you know, when I got into the business, I invested in coaching like very early on. I mean, within the first few months of uh, getting my real estate license. And it was huge for me because I was so like green. I had no clue what I was doing, but it really helped me. I know this term now. I didn't know it then. It helped me timeline hop. I mean, it helped me turn, you know, decades into days at times. And, it, and granted, there was times where I was still banging my head against the wall trying to figure all this out. But I don't think I would have been able to make as much progress if I didn't have that. And so I became so obsessed with personal development myself because of what I just talked about in terms of, you know, developing your mindset and being ready for the challenging times and being ready to capture opportunities, you know, when, when the opportunities arise. Um, that I just became so obsessed with it. I started reading books all the time. I started, you know, going to conferences and and meeting folks like yourself and listening to podcasts and and doing podcasts and being on podcasts. That I was like, you know what? At this point, like, I want to give back. I want to be involved here because I I get lit up more, you know, when I'm being coached or when I'm coaching someone else than almost anything in my life uh, because I know the power behind it and I know what it can do and I know what it can help people create in their life. Um, because like I said earlier, like real estate is a vehicle for your life. And so I just became so obsessed with that. And like, that's who I became. And I didn't know that that was me. I didn't know that that was me under all this. I, I just thought I was like the guy who, you know, I wanted to be a businessman growing up. I went to business school. And so, um, but as I started to learn all this stuff, I became more satisfied with who I was becoming than, you know, any financial success that I had or any other you know, worldly success. It was like something that no one could take away from me. So I just became so obsessed with that and, and so deeply in love with that, that I wanted to give it to others. And that's why I decided to do it. Awesome. The power of giving back because is phenomenal. Just because when you give and you don't expect anything in return, you actually get way more when you receive, which is ridiculous. So true. This is why I got into real estate. It's not because, like you said, it's not the money. Like, it's a means to an end. I like real estate because I can use it to give back in different ways. Like, I've mm -hmm. seen charities, events, and stuff like that because of real estate, which is phenomenal. Absolutely. So, what is your best piece of advice for somebody that's new, that's looking to have, probably have a few single-family houses, looking to get into commercial real estate? How do they start a relationship with the broker because that's kind of the key point into commercial real estate is brokers. Yeah. I really like the thought of just being honest, you know, cause you don't have to act like you're some big, bad, you know, uh, you know, experienced 
commercial real estate investor to gain those relationships, just be honest. Hey, look, I want to get into that space. Is there anything that I can do to learn? You know, is there anything that you would recommend for me to do? And just be honest. And then, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot is like seeking to serve, you know, what can you do to find, you know, who is it that's doing the 80 to 20 kind of uh, role? Who's, who are the, who are the 20% that are producing 80% of the results? And, you know, go out and find out how can you kind of tag along with them and, and add value. I mean, you don't want to be, you know, getting in their way in any ways, but what can you do to add value to them? Um, so you definitely want to do that, but you're, you're definitely your first step is going to be learning. I mean, just being aware. I mean, read as many books as you can. You know, I, I would recommend hiring a coach. Um, I would recommend, um, you know, going to, you know, networking events, going to conferences, seminars, whatever it may be. And so just investing your time and your, you know, your, your time and growing your experience, but also you've got to learn about the different asset classes. You know, what is it that, you know, in, intrigues you about commercial real estate? Is it just about the money? Well, okay, that's great. But, you know, what is it that you can do differently than your competitors? Um, so I think kind of starting there in terms of learning, but also building your network simultaneously of other folks that they can like and trust you. And they can, you know, they can say, well, you know what, we all have to start somewhere. And I mean, you know, I'm not Grant Cardone by any means, like, I'm still feeling like I'm starting somewhere. So I think showing people that, that you're, um, that you're real, and that you have some experience, but you're also willing to be humble, and you're willing to learn more. That's really where you kind of start to build those real relationships in the commercial real estate side. But I will say one more thing on this is that a lot of people in commercial real estate, um, sometimes they look at folks coming into the business and they say, all right, well, how long are they going to last? You know, are they, so it does take some time to really build those relationships in commercial real estate because it's such a long-term business that most of these folks have built relationships for decades. And so if you stick around and you think, and you start thinking, well, man, I'm not making any traction and you've only been around for a few months, just keep plugging away. I mean, just be patient and keep giving, giving, giving without any expectation of return. And before you know it, you'll start to do deals. You took the words right out of my mouth. Just patience and consistently giving with no expectations is the key. That's it. Phenomenal. So we're going to transition into my fire round. I got three questions before we head out for the day. Uh, the first one is, what is your favorite late night snack? Ooh, my favorite late night snack. You know, um, gosh, I don't really eat a lot of late night snacks because I'm a morning person. I'll be honest with you at nighttime. Uh, when it hits like 930, 10 o'clock, I'm like a zombie. So, uh, but if I had to say my favorite late night snack, I would probably say... Gosh, man, you put me on the spot on this one. This is a tough one. Let me just say, like, oh man, I don't know, a cookie, something like that. Like, I'll do a, a chocolate chip cookie. I can okay. do that. Yeah. Okay, I was gonna say what type of cookie, but you cleared it up. So there we go. All right. Somebody being an avid reader like yourself, I enjoy reading as well. I do the audio books. I got the ebooks, Amazon Kindle. Yeah. I got. I looked at it. It was like over two hundred plus books. I'm like, wow. That's awesome. Oh yeah. So what is I was going to say, what is your most impactful book that you've read within the last year? Okay, within the last year, um, easily, this one's easy. And, and it's funny because it wasn't easy before like two weeks ago when I read this book. Um, it is, uh, it's called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself 
by Dr. Joe Dispenza. And uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza is kind of like a, I think he's a neuroscientist. And his background is actually in chiropractic. Uh, he's a, he was a chiropractor before that. Um, but my God, it was amazing because, you know, it talks about like your brain and your body and how your body is really the subconscious mind and your, and your head is really more of the conscious mind. And we use, uh, you know, 95% of our mind is, is a subconscious mind. And you start to realize what I learned through that book, and I would highly recommend it because there's so much deeper than just what I'm going to tell you here, is that you start to get addicted to certain emotions because you carve these neural pathways between your mind and your body. And you start to act out these emotions on a continual basis. And if you aren't aware of it, you really like you get stuck in this rut. It's a real rut. So, um, you know, for me, it was so interesting because I see investing and business in general as a spiritual game and as a, you know, it's an emotional game. You got to control your own emotions. And so to me, it's an extremely valuable book and something that I would highly recommend your listeners looking into. Awesome. I'm definitely going to check it out and put it in the show notes. Absolutely. So last question, what do you like to do to help you relax from a busy day of being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I, I, I like to work out. I like to, uh, to go to the gym. And every time I go to the gym, actually, one of my friends said this recently, and it really stuck out to me is like, you know, exercise is my Prozac. You know, it's like, it kind of makes you not feel like, you know, it can be challenging. I mean, we have so many challenges that sometimes you just want to like throw in the white towel. But I notice if I move my body, if I get my physiology, if I get my blood flowing, then it really helps me de-stress and kind of get my mind off stuff. But I have a German shepherd too. And we like to, you know, we go on walks and we go to the park and things like that. And just kind of get out in nature is very nice for me to take away the stress. Well, yes, for me, I don't have a gym yet, but just running this short distance, that moving of your body is so helpful, even for 100%. a quick two minutes. Yes. It's so helpful. Now I understand why distance joggers like to go my running. I, I'm a sprinter. I don't like distance, but I understand it now. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, Tyler, thank you for taking the time to be on the show. I greatly appreciate it, man. Anthony, it's been an absolute pleasure to be with you, and I really appreciate you having me on. All right. Can you let the listeners know the best way to get in contact with you? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, my website is tylerchester.com. Uh, so you can reach me there and you can actually find out, um, you can hear more on my podcast. It's Elevate Podcast. So you can find it anywhere on any podcast channel that you like to listen to. Of course, my website as well has more information there. Uh, or you can also find me on uh, Instagram or Twitter at the Tyler Chesser uh, or on Facebook. You know, of course, um, you know, the Chesser company is there, which is my company and then Elevate Podcast Community on Facebook. So many, many different ways to connect with me. Awesome. Check out his podcast. I listened to quite a few episodes. Ton of value that you gain from it. Definitely worth checking it out. Well, thank Tyler, you. thank you. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I greatly appreciate it. Leave us a review and rating on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Also, share with a friend who might enjoy or benefit from the show. I want you to remember this. The knowledge you learned is useless until you take action upon it. Subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. See you next week.